0: David Nikki Nellis on this beautiful Sunday, the very last Sunday of Donald Trump's moments in the White House. Uh, We've been celebrating all week, um, all night. So we're delighted that he's gone. Quarantining still sucks, but there's all this great food and drink happening around the area. And we'll be telling you all about it today and from home until we can get back into the studio and on the air. Nick, you want to catch everybody up on what's happening on the restaurant scene there, real quick?
1: Yeah, so um, it was a really busy week. And I, I once again, I really uh, beg people, if you are able to order from restaurants, etc. now is the time to do it. That um, riot last week had to shut a lot of restaurants down. And of course, what's going on with the inauguration, it's really pulling much needed cash from these restaurants at a time when they obviously really need it. So go to the list you want it.com believe it or not there are so many restaurants and bars that are doing to-go packages uh for inauguration lots of celebration boxes so lots of ways to participate in the celebration and also support your restaurant so we have the whole list on the list are you on it.com. Aside from the inauguration there are a ton of food and wine demos happening all around the city You should really now take a look at the calendar for the week and find out what you're doing Lastly mark your calendar for Tuesday, January 26. It's international sous vide day and uh, It's totally virtual Everybody can participate chefs from all around the world are doing cooking demos and panels I just hosted a panel with Daniel Bouloud and Grace Ramirez and Kyle Connaughton. It was fabulous. Um, So all these great things are going to be happening on that day. Please mark your calendar. And David, why don't you introduce the guests who are going to be on the show today? I will
0: as I eat my uh, uh, sous vide eggs from Starbucks. which I Okay,
1: good. All
0: right. So uh, joining us as always is Deb Moser of Central Farm Markets. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the things you would not expect to find at a farmer's market that you can find at Central Farm Markets. Uh, Julie Peterson of mark wine group is going to be on talking about the wines of Georgia Georgia and Bulgaria argue all the time about who invented wine uh, Julie's gonna tell us that it was Georgia <laughs> and we'll find out more uh, Everybody knows that true Neapolitan pizza is is something special for your taste buds uh, pizzeria pupatella brings a real deal here uh, Neapolitan pizza baked in a real pizza oven made in Naples Uh, to us. Michael Berger is one of the uh, partners of uh, Pizzeria Pupatella, and he's going to be on telling us all about it. Yael Krigman is a genius baker. We have had her bagels and she bakes that and more baked by Yael is in Woodley Park across from the zoo. And we're going to be talking to her about uh, she had an odd, odd journey to become a baker. And speaking of pizza, again, Jordan Feinberg loves it so much. He went to Italy in search of the greatest pizza it could be baked, sold, frozen, and baked again at home. And he says he's found it. It's called Pinza. and we're going to hear about it.
1: It's pizza. It's not pizza. It's not pizza. It's
0: pinza. Well, but it's, okay. You know, we'll get the guy on the phone. He says it's pizza. Okay, it's called Pinza. Just so you know. Okay. You don't know anything. And right. let's talk to Deb Moser. Deb. So yes. Super Farm Markets has fresh produce and meats and all of that, but you guys... Un, it's unusual for farmer's markets have spirits and beers and all of that. Talk okay, a little bit so about that. To,
1: that's not the question. I want to back up. That's so my does,
0: question.
1: Here's the thing. When people think of a farmer's market, they think of, just like David said, eggs and meats, maybe, I mean, even fish seems a little out of the way for it, but veggies, right? Like that's what and plants, right. like it, things that come out of the ground. But now when you go to a farmer's market, there's so many other things happening and wine beer and spirits appear there now how did that happen what where did the change come
2: that's a good question and i will tell you in the state of maryland mitch actually had a hand in making that happen uh originally the uh wineries were not allowed to come to a farmer's market yet here they are agricultural enterprises and they were not deemed ready to come to the markets or fit to come to the markets, however the state looked at them. So Mitch got together with some of our state representatives and they went, went to the state and they said they are agricultural enterprises. They should be allowed to come. And they actually got a bill signed. And in the beginning, they were allowed to come, I think, once a month. Well, it became so popular that the state granted licenses to do more than just once a month. So we now have, that was extended out from wineries into breweries and distilleries. And you know, each state has a myriad of wonderful wineries, breweries, and distilleries, and they're all locally grown and managed. And so we, do, we have them, we, have, we rotate them through the markets. So each week, you'll know, you get a note on our e-blast, who's going to be there. And some of our favorites are Miscellaneous Distillery. Um, They have some wonderful whiskeys and their gin is outstanding. Um, We have Twin Valley distillers and they're local right here in Rockville. Some of these people are even uh, distributing now through the liquor stores and the wine shops. Butterfly Spirits, their vodkas are to die for, and their, um, packaging, their, their packaging,
0: packaging is crazy. Oh, their that.
2: packaging is gorgeous, just gorgeous. Right. And Ward, can we say Burberry? just by the
0: way that the founder of that company is a brain surgeon? Go yes. All it.
2: right. All right. Quick story. I taught him in high school, oh and I taught God. him everything. And you know he what? Knows. He
0: told us he had the hots for one of his high school teachers. So maybe
2: <laughs> wasn't me. On
0: you could have <laughs> had He's a brain a great surgeon. Guy.
2: Yeah. He's a great guy, <laughs> so I know where to go for my vodka and brain surgery. <laughs> and brain
0: surgery, right. And,
2: um,
1: and we have to wrap it up. So let's give a shout out to one more and then tell everybody where they can find you. So
2: Waradaka Brewery, they have horses, they have uh, outdoor seating now. You got to find them. You can find us at centralfarmmarkets.com. We're open <laughs> both in Virginia and Bethesda all winter. So come out and see us. Great, thanks, Deb. Thank all, right,
0: all right, care. let's talk to Julie Peterson about Georgian wines, you know. Hey, Glenn. When, I, I, hey, so when some people see they, wines of Georgia, do they get confused and think you're talking about Atlanta?
3: No, you know? um, I don't. I don't think so anymore.
0: <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> so, uh, how did you get involved in this? Because it's a little unusual. Do you have a? I mean, is your family of Georgian descent?
3: You know, actually, I'm a farmer's daughter from Iowa. Mm, um, really? But I think what was so interesting when we work in the wine industry, and usually we work with countries or regions, um, and I had some friends go to Georgia actually on a tourism um, uh, uh, conference. And they came back and they were like, Julie, you have got to go to Georgia. There's something super exciting going on there. It's unbelievable. And I didn't, You know, I knew where Georgia was, but hadn't had any of the wines there. So at the time, I went to Red Hen, and um, met with uh, the some importers and tried some um, Georgian wine, and uh, had never tasted anything like it. So I flew to Georgia the next month, and um, and that was five years ago. Just we were blown away by what is developing there.
1: So let's talk about the wines of Georgia and you know, for people who are unaware of the grapes and flavor profiles, what we're looking at.
3: Yeah, I think that the interesting thing, I mean, Georgia is kind of like Italy in that it has uh, over 500 varietals. So there's kind of a lot to sift through. There's really about 10 that are really um, going strong right now in the U.S. market. So they have a big red called Saperavi, which is sort of like a Cabernet, um, but it is, it's is—it's not tannic in structure. Right. So, and it has higher acid. So it's just like a big red wine, but it's easy to drink um, because it doesn't have that high tannic structure. And then Roccazzatelli um, is, is, their, is their largest uh, white wine that's planted, white grape that's planted. And, you know, they make a lot of their wines um, with uh they make their white wines like they make their red wines with the skins buried in the ground in these large clay pots Mm -hmm. and so what emerges is this like golden um uh golden wine that has like dried apricots white tea it's all these flavors that we're not really used to when we think about a white wine
1: Mm -hmm. well it's a bolder wine like it's, it's i don't know how to explain it um, but it has, uh, it has way more body than say, you know, a California Savignon
3: Blanc, right? For sure. I mean, if you don't put the skins with it, it would be very much like, um, kind of like a shenan almost. But when you put the skins with it, it's just like putting the skins with a red wine. You get this, instead of getting a rosé, you get this like great, um, you know, just kind of a, a boulder, as you say, like it has, it has legs to it, um. <laughs> Yeah, and it
0: has body. So, so let me, well, wait. Let me jump in with a question because, you know, George. I mean, clearly, during the times of the Soviet Union, Georgian wines were not going to be well known or even even thought of by folks out here in the uh, in the U.S. or the free world. Now they're out, and after you know, and 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 Georgia is is independent. What's holding? I mean, is it is are you being held back still from kind of a branding point of view because? If people hear it's an Italian wine or French wine or maybe now a Spanish wine, they're like, "Oh, or a Chilean wine," um, and a lot of that is just marketing. It's the the nation putting money into that. Is is the country of Georgia kind of helping you do your thing, or no?
3: Yeah, I mean, there was you had a lot of questions bundled yeah. there. Um, you know, they've only been an open country. We've only had access to their wines for they've only been they got their independence in ninety one. Right. um sort of like Ukraine was the breadbasket for all the Soviet states Georgia was the wine cask so they're very very famous in that part of the world I mean if you go to any country in the old Soviet blocks the, any if you ask anyone they'll be like where does the best wine come from across the board everyone will say Georgia um, so we just didn't know we didn't have access to it um, they're a young country they' got their independence in 91 2008 the very first exports. Of yeah. Georgian wine went to Europe. I mean, that was not that long ago. Right. So we're still under discovery, you know? And I love the fact that they they're, st- they're planting their indigenous varieties. They're not trying to jump on board and try to, you know, plant more Cabernet Sauvignon or um, Chardonnay. They're like, well, these are the grapes that we've always grown. This is what we're going to continue to grow. So I think a big part of it is just like educating people to be like, try a saparavi. You know, it's, it's like in the same category as a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Malbec. Um, uh, or a gamay, for example. So I think it's just people getting um, getting information about them, and um, and I love this kind of openness of exploration right now that's in the wine market. So that's super exciting.
1: Um, okay, Julie, we're going to take a quick break. Um, but when we come back, I really want to talk about you know there's an opening of new Georgian restaurants, Tabla and Supra and Compass Rose. So the public is learning about the cuisine, which goes hand in hand with the wine. So we'll get into that. This is David and Nikki Nellis, Foodie and the Beast. We'll get back in just a sec.
0: Okay, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. And we are talking to Julie Peterson about wines of Georgia. We have had Georgian wines. I think the first time we tried them was probably five or six years ago. And the word that keeps coming, when you mentioned a gamay, that's what I w- would would think of it. It's rich and deep and delicious. Uh, there are no wimpy Georgian wines that I can remember ever tasting.
1: But Julie, there's, there's not just like two wines, right? I mean, there's lots of styles of wine. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the wines? Like if I were to go to a wine store, where would you direct me uh, for, you know, let's say two kinds of whites and two kinds of reds?
3: So typically Georgian wine, because it's new, it's typically um, in the European section. It's like other Europe. So if you go in, you're like, hey, I'd love to try some Georgian wine. Typically it's in the Europe's European section. And you will always see probably a saparavi, which is, uh, I think you're right. It, it is more like a Gamay because it doesn't have that like strong tannic structure. It doesn't feel like when you're drinking it, you know, you're, getting punched in the face. It's like a Gamay. Um, and so the other one, my, one of my favorites is called story which is more of like a Pinot Noir. It's a light, medium bodied wine and the depth, the high acid of it. It's like up in the, it's grown up in the mountains. I mean, Georgia is a. An all amount, almost an entirely mountainous country, but this this Alida story is just a phenomenal grape. So if you can find Alida story as well, those are two that are really um, the reds that are available in the Washington area. Okay. and then the whites, um, the two that really stand out are Ricazzatelli mm-hmm. and Mitzvani. And both the um can be really big and, and bold. It can also, without the skin contact, um, again, it's super high acidic wine. Um, and that's why I think the pairing and, and Nikki, as you say, with the, in the category with the food, you know, these foods can stand up. If you go to into a Whole Foods market and you say, what works well with like Asian food? You know, the buyers at Whole Foods are like, okay, the Georgian wines is what they recommend every time because it has such an, um, it has the whites both have tannic structure and they um <clears throat> They have a, they can stand up to Asian food. They can stand up to heavy, like creamed foods, like all well, of these. Well, I can think foods.
1: of kachipuri. I mean, that yes. bread, cheesy, eggy dish. I mean, that's, that's not light eating. I mean, that's, you know, you need a wine that can stand up with that. <laughs> you
3: do. Mm-hmm. If, if your listeners haven't heard about kachipuri, it is their, the Georgian mountainous pizza. Okay. Essentially, It's <laughs> like this big cheese boat. Um which comes in like there's 12 different um, styles depending on the region that you're in. And uh, it's just, you do need, um, you know, you need some, you need some wine to go with that so that can stand up to that cheesy business.
0: Guys, uh, let me jump in. Unfortunately, Julie, we're running out of time, but um, I want to make sure that you tell our listeners where they can find number one, where they can find Georgian wines uh, around the DC area. Number two, since there are no wine tastings these days, um how they can learn more about this you know where, where where do they go to find out more and at least get a sense of uh, what's waiting for them when this quarantining ends
3: mm. yeah um well you know there's the two big georgian restaurants and of course compass rose the first time i tasted georgian wine though was in um was red hen which still carries it primrose um goat i mean all of these guys who are sort of Introducing the market in the DC area to int- new regions and regions that we may not be aware of I mean, Georgian wine is in all of those and in the independent um retailers as well from well Whole Foods but then you know domestique anyone that specializes in natural wine Georgian wine is kind of the leader in natural wine um so anybody who's specializing in Georgian wine to Potomac you know down on M Street so it's really this is an exciting city to be in because there's so much Georgian wine in the marketplace for you to find.
1: All right Julie thank you so much for joining us today it's always a pleasure to have you on and talk about Georgian
3: wine. Thank you. Have a great day.
1: All right, so up next, we're gonna talk about Pupatella Pizzeria, which um, I had Pupitella my first time, like 15 years ago. It was a little place in Virginia. I went with a couple of food writers and um, it was like the pizzeria darling at the time. And now it's expanded and it's so exciting. Um,
0: Michael the- Berger is one of the partners. He's up, Michael, we got you on the phone. Yes, sir. good. Good morning. Right.
1: For those who aren't aware of the Pupatella brand, can you tell us a little bit about its background and like its, its origins?
4: So Pupatella is for, first and foremost, I think the name kind of leads it off is uh, Pupatella. This is uh, Enzo, uh, so my business partner, Enzo uh, Algarme and his wife Anastasia. Uh, they are the founders of the brand uh, and Pupatella, Uh, is a a word in really only in Naples that is spoken, uh, and it means little doll. And that was his grandmother's nickname. And so the restaurant is after his grandmother's namesake. Uh, Enzo is from Naples, born and raised in Naples. Uh, He ended up coming over to the D.C. area uh, to go to school at George Mason University and play soccer there. Um, He was actually almost, I wouldn't say kicked out, but strongly encouraged by his family to leave Naples because his family had been in food for years and years and years in that specific region, uh, and they wanted somebody to kind of branch out. Uh, So so Enzo tried his hand at soccer here at uh, George Mason, had a pre-medical degree that he got, was working in the medical field between potentially going to to, um, medical school, realized that there was just no pizza like he had known at home uh, and it kind of frustrated him. And so he and Anastasia decided to start a food cart uh, outside the Boston Metro, making pizza exactly as you would find in Naples. And so, you know, we, we go to great lengths to prepare uh, pizzas exactly as you would find in Naples today or 150 years ago. Uh, so we're not Neapolitan style. We're not Neapolitan like. We're not Neapolitan imitators. Uh, we are Neapolitan. Well, uh, And that that's really the ethos of the brand.
0: But Michael, one of the the keys to Neapolitan pizza is the Neapolitan, uh, the, the real deal Neapolitan pizza oven. Yeah, um, sure. And so, I mean, talk a little bit about that because I think, you know, I used to work in a pizzeria when I was in college and we had ovens that went up to 600 degrees. And we'd slam the pizza in there, pull it out and serve it. There's I know, but that was an
1: it. Italian-style I'm saying, saying there's Neapolitan. way more
0: to it than that. Why, what makes yeah. the, ovens, the Neapolitan ovens more special? Absolutely. So six, 600 degrees is quite low. That would actually be like what
4: our oven would be sitting at a couple of hours after we've actually fully emptied out all the embers. <laughs> uh, so our ovens will get up to anywhere between 800 and 1,000 degrees throughout the day, obviously depending on how much wood is fed into it. Uh, we're an entirely wood-burning oven. So there is no utility service to it. Uh, It is a brick oven made out of ash from Mount Vesuvius. And yes, the Mount Vesuvius that wiped out Pompeii way, way back when. Uh, That is one of the trademarks of true Neapolitan ovens is to be made out of this compressed uh, brick, uh, sorry, compressed ash from Mount Vesuvius. Uh, And then it's tiled over. Uh, It has an incredible heat retention. and, And I said that kind of jokingly, but uh, for a long while, and, and Nikki, you may remember this, the, the the restaurant in North Arlington was closed on Mondays. We've since opened on Mondays, but uh, Enzo at one point, uh, a few years back actually showed me, and I couldn't even believe it, on Monday morning, uh, Anastasia goes in and she makes gelatos, uh, gelato on Monday morning. We make our own fresh gelato, uh, and the oven is still hot enough after having sat from the night before and getting in there at you know, nine, 10 in the morning, you could still cook a pizza in it takes a little longer. Normally our pizzas when it's up in the 800, to thousand degree range will take anywhere between 60 and 90 seconds to cook. Uh, so it's very fast uh, and the, the pizziolo and, and those on the oven are uh, very good at their trade. You can very quickly uh, burn these pizzas uh, if you're not paying close attention, if you're not rotating it. Uh, so there really is an art form to it and, and you're exactly right. Uh, The oven is the engine that drives it all. And we're importing those from Naples um, uh, for each of our restaurants. They're built there. They're tiled here in the United States uh, and then shipped to us.
0: Well, talk a little bit about the Pizzaiolo too, because you need a special certificate of training to be a certified pizza maker in Naples. Um, What kind of training is that? I mean. Yes. So, uh, so you're right. We Enzo, Enzo when he decided that he
4: wanted to uh, open his own, location, uh, to make pizza and really become a true pizziolo. He went back and trained under some of the finest pizziolos, uh, in, in the Naples area. Uh, obviously he had grown up around it as well and had done his own cooking, but he went and really got the training there in the region. Uh, we maintain a VPN certification, which is, uh, an Italian, now it is an Italian government designation. It started out actually as some of the oldest families, the oldest pizza making families in Naples, uh, you know, I think, oh gosh, I don't want to say in the 80s, they decided everyone was trying to imitate Naples pizza, Neapolitan pizza. And so they decided they wanted to start an association. Uh, right. And that association then offered certifications to those that were doing it in the old Neapolitan style. And uh, I'm sure you guys know this, some of your listeners may not, but you know, Naples is credited with where pizza was invented. Uh, so it was really important to them that they maintained their craft They maintained the ingredients, they maintained the oven style uh, that they were knowing that that's how their pizzas were made. And so uh, each of our restaurant locations gets a VPN certification. And what that entails is our pizziolos from, you know, even before we open each of these restaurant locations, they come in and they train under some of our certified, uh, uh, under our certified restaurant with our pizziolos that have been making it for years and years. Um, and then, you know, and then they go off and then the VPN team comes and they certify the restaurant and they're looking for not just the processes by which you're making things. Uh, they look at the equipment. So we have to use a certain kind of mixer. We need to use a certain kind of oven. Uh, we need to use a certain kind of flour. We need to make our dough with only the ingredients of water, yeast, salt, and double O flour. Um, we need Getting to hungry. use,
1: um, hey,
5: hey,
4: Michael. yeah. So, yeah.
1: We have to take a quick break, so I'm just going to put you on hold for a second. We'll have about a uh, two minutes when we come back, okay? This is David Don't and Nikki Nellis it. with Foodie and the Beast. We're talking about Pupatella Pizza, which is now in multiple locations. We'll find out more about that when we come back.
0: We are back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We're talking to Michael Berger, who's one of the partners at uh, Pupatella. Is it Pizzeria Pupatella or Pupatella Pizzeria, Michael? Pupatella, and then, Pupitella. yeah, Pupatella right. Pizzeria. And you've got you started with one little location out in Virginia, and uh, and now you're uh, today, you know today Virginia, tomorrow the world. Tell us where to find you <laughs> and how to order these pizzas.
4: Well, thank you. Yes, yeah. so we uh, we
0: have five locations
4: now. We have our original location in North Arlington. Uh, we opened a location in the in in Richmond, Virginia, in the Fan District, which is in right. their downtown area a few years ago. Uh, Last December, we opened in South Arlington, uh, kind of call it a sister restaurant to our North Arlington location. That is at uh, the intersection of South Walter Reed and Glebe Road, uh, just up from Sherlington. Uh, We then recently this summer opened a location in DuPont Circle uh, in the space that was formerly Rosemary Time, or right next door to Anjou. Uh, And we then most recently over the holidays, actually, which is where I spent a lot of my time over the holidays. Uh, we opened a new location in Reston, Virginia.
0: Uh, what is, is something wrong with Maryland, Michael?
4: We are, no, not at all. Uh, are we you an anti right? No, no, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a local. I grew up in this area, so no, I, the, And even from local knows that the DMV really does function as kind of a try, try area. So, Uh no, we are working actively at the moment on uh, some sites in Maryland. Uh Um, Nothing that I can quite announce yet, but yes, that is in the work. All right. I feel
0: better. (laughs)
1: We have one minute left, Michael. Just if you could just tell everybody, sort of, you know, how to get access. I mean, clearly in DC, there's no indoor dining. Do you guys have mm-hmm. patios? What's the best? Do you use mm-hmm. third party? Do you prefer people to order directly through you? What's uh, what's the best way to get access to your products?
4: Absolutely. So uh, for all the locations, you can do a walk-up order. Uh, we have. It's set up where we have safe spaces, we have plexiglass, uh, we have social distancing, uh, so we can take in-person orders. Uh, at the locations right now, we're really not doing indoor dining, so it is all takeaway. Uh, we've just made that decision recently to kind of keep, that, keep it out of the restaurant. Uh, and then we do have uh, online ordering. So if you go to our website, pupatella.com, Uh, All of the restaurant locations will have a page where you can link to their online menu and you can order online there. Uh, And we do have uh, patios. Our our North Arlington location kind of has a beautiful, we actually recently expanded uh, just before quarantine, actually. uh, We had expanded this back area into kind of a beer garden layout. So We have a lot of outdoor spaces there, a lot of social distancing. Uh, Our DuPont Circle location. Uh, has a large patio there on the corner. And we have heaters at both North Arlington and we have heaters uh, in DuPont. And then in uh, South Arlington, we have a covered patio. Uh, We're in the process of installing some side panels, Uh, not fully enclose it, because obviously that would make it almost like being inside, but to to at least cut the wind. Uh, And then in Reston, we have a large patio space where we have uh, several tables outside, a few of which have fire pits in the center. And then we have some heaters scattered around. Nice. And anyone is welcome to dine off?
1: with us. I got I to cut you off, dude. Sorry. I mean, everything you're saying is really interesting, but we only have so much time. So can you please just give your website? com. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. Up next, we're going to be talking to a local bagel maker, but she started with Cake Pops. El, are you there?
6: Hi, thanks for having me on your show. Hi, Yael, Hi. how so, are uh, you?
1: Before we get into uh, Yael and what she does uh, at Baked by Yael, um, a couple weeks ago, I dragged my son on Christmas morning to walk from my house in Kensington to the zoo so that we could pick up uh, Yael's bagels uh, for our own food. Uh, Jewish Christmas which was so much fun and she was there with her boyfriend she gave her uh, her crew the day off but she and her boyfriend were there making bagels it was so great so um I'm a fan so you it's so nice of you to join us today can you tell us a little bit because you did not get into baking like you didn't grow up and was like I'm a baker you practice law
6: yes I never would have thought that this would be my career I um I went to law school. I practiced law for a couple of years. I was actually at a firm for eight years and never dreamed. And then you of said, why, bakery.
0: why am I killing myself this way? I'd rather <laughs> kill myself making challah. So.
6: <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I would bring in baked goods um, just for fun to my coworkers. And I realized at one point that there was one job I was doing because I really enjoyed it and made people happy. And there was another job I was doing for the money. And so I thought, Well, maybe I can try to make money doing what I love. As it turns out, you can't, but you can certainly, you can certainly try and have fun while you're doing it.
1: But now when you started, it was cake pops, right? I mean, I mean, that's how I remember hearing about you first, but you were doing bagels too. Like, how did you, how did you morph into this business?
6: So I actually started because I had a friend of mine come to visit me and she loved bagels and I was trying to find a good bagel for her to for us to enjoy and I could not I thought you know what. Let's just make our own bagels. So we made bagels. And that's actually how I got my start, making bagels. And that's what I would bring into my classmates and to my coworkers. And then from there, it sort of became a stress reliever when I was studying for the bar. You know, you're not supposed to hang out with friends. You're not supposed to go out. You're not supposed to do anything but study. And that's not my personality. So I started baking as a form of procrastination and just started baking more things for more people and realized that I actually really enjoyed it. And
1: so how did you expand on that when you opened up your, I mean, did you do a brick and mortar first or did you start delivering no. first? How did you get into it?
6: So I started because, you know, the, the, the lawyer in me, I figured, well, I may as well register my LLC. I may as well sign up to pay my taxes. I may as well just start my business, even if it's just going to be a side thing. And then my coworkers, they'd come in for a Monday treat, I called it. So they'd come into my office every Monday and they would say, like, oh, this is so amazing. You know? You're a great lawyer, but you should really consider opening it sounds, up your own bakery. It's like if this the way our, our
0: dogs hang around the dinner table, hoping for something better than what they eat.
6: So. <laughs> well, that, that is not
0: the comparison I would make, but
6: fair no, enough. I mean,
0: they're looking for, <laughs> <Mickey> <laughs> happens to be a great cook. I think they're looking for something better.
6: So I brought, so one day from a day treat, I brought in cake pops. And I had just read about them in a book. I think I had seen something on a listserv about them, didn't even really know what they were. And my coworkers always loved my treats. But when I brought in cake pots, they just flipped out. And at that point, I had just started operating a kiosk at the Annapolis Mall. And I decided that that would be a great opportunity to try out the cake pop. So it all happened very quickly. I actually started selling cake pops a couple of weeks before Starbucks did. Um, so in that sense, that's probably the only sense in which I've been trendy. <laughs> Everything else you, has been very right. traditional.
0: I have a question, just a quick one. I have a cousin, Yael, in, in, in Israel, but you're, you were born and bred in America, correct?
6: That's correct. My dad so, is Israeli.
0: So do people have trouble pronouncing your name? Do they call you yes. Yale?
6: <laughs> people have called me everything under the sun. Uh, so that that has been, and I actually had a focus group with about three dozen people to decide what the name of my bakery should be. And I, I said it definitely should not have my name in it. And everybody else said it definitely should. So it, it has made it interesting for sure.
1: Well, so now let's get to now. So you have this brick and mortar. It's across from the zoo. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, I assume you had a tremendous, amount of sales coming from the zoo. I mean, you walk out of the entrance of your zoo and there are cake pops and baked goods. I mean, I imagine that was a huge portion of your sales. How did you pivot? Transition.
0: Transition.
6: Yeah, absolutely. The, the zoo was zoo brought in um, a ton of sales. We also did a lot of cor- uh, corporate catering and events and offices. We worked with a lot of hotels. So the cake pops were really our bread and butter. Um, and the bagels were always there because, to be honest, our hardcore customers would not let me stop selling bagels. <laughs> they were so so we kept them on. And I always thought, well, you know, it'll be good to have these traditional Jewish baked goods in case cake pops aren't trendy anymore. So I thought this was going to happen in several years, and I would have something to fall back on. Well, of course, when the pandemic hit, nobody wants 100 cake pops in their house, right. and they're not having any events. They're uh, not you having met any our parties. Kids,
0: but <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, sorry, yeah, that's true. I shouldn't judge. Some people might want 100 cake pops in their house, but not everybody. But what they did want was they wanted the bagels and the challah and the rugelach and the things that provided comfort to them um, in a more of an emotional way. You know, cake pops are fun and delicious. And I think what people really needed was something that it seemed so simple, but it brought so much joy to their to their home and to their lives during such a terrible year.
1: And yeah. so were you able given, you know, sort of the amount of cake pops you were making, even though you still made bagels and challah, were you able to increase that production given your space, was that a problem?
6: It was de- it was not a problem. It was a huge challenge because we were we were not set up to be a bagel bakery. Right. We were a cake poppery that also sold bagels. The so we don't have <laughs> <laughs> registered trademark. <laughs> um, we we did not have the space for it. We did not have the ovens for it. Um, of course, social distancing has been a challenge. So we really just had to make it work. And and we have because I was I was so committed to keeping my staff, and I also felt a strong obligation to my. Customers, You know, they they wanted these bagels and, and I wanted them to be happy. So we made it work um, and we have we have uh, Managed to work our production out in a way that we can make the cake pops for people who are sending them all over the country um, We can make the bagels for people who want them at home and we can try to stay safe
1: and you, But you're also doing classes you do demos, right?
6: Yes. So we used to have cake pop parties in the store and they were so much fun. And there would be screaming children running around the kitchen. And we even had um, bachelorette parties and, and um, corporate uh, cake pop classes. And of course, that all just came to a grinding halt in March. So um, a- again, you know, my goal is to stay in business. This is my livelihood. I felt obligated to my staff. So, um, you know, my boyfriend and I were just brainstorming like, what what can we do? Like, we can't just give up. And so um, he actually helped me create a Zoom studio in the kitchen. So now it's almost better because people can do it safely from home and they can do it all over the country. So people right. who otherwise would never have been able to come to do a class are now able to learn how to make cake pops and we just ship them their their cake pop kits. Can we? it's kind of fun. Well, I always
1: say it's the tiniest, itty bittiest of silver linings of the pandemic is this Zoom, right? Like being able to access people all over the world as opposed to just the people who can come into your store. But
0: I've got a very important question, Yaya, okay. so get ready. Okay. Um, there is a uh, there, there are two groups of cake pop eaters. One that says you shove the whole thing into your, into your mouth and, and slide it off and eat it that way, and the other that says you nibble. Now, what is the proper way to eat a cake pop?
6: I would have to say that the proper way is whichever way makes you the happiest.
0: Oh, that's, I have, that's a quibbling answer.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I have friends who will eat them in one bite, and I do not judge them. Yeah, I personally, I eat them in four bites because I like even numbers, and I like I like savoring things.
1: Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up, but before we do, are you doing cake pops for
6: inauguration? We are doing red, white, and blue cake pops for inauguration. Yes, sure. Absolutely.
0: Oh, have okay. you been? Have you been Biden your time waiting to make them? <laughs>
1: awesome. All right, yeah. I'll tell everybody please where they can find you. Your brick and mortar, and where they can find you online to order your fabulous bagels, cake pops, and challah.
6: Sure, Baked by Yael is across from the National Zoo. We're also at several farmers markets, and you can order online twenty four seven at bakedbyyael Excellent.
1: Thanks so much. Good to see you. Good
6: Thanks for again. having me. Bye.
1: Okay. Bye. Up next. We are going to learn about pinza. It's not pizza, it's pinza with Jordan Feinberg.
0: So, our next guest is a gentleman named Jordan Feinberg who went on a quest uh, to find the, the perfect pizza that could be made, frozen, uh, and then basically cooked, baked again and not get mushy. And he discovered pinza. And Jordan joins us now. Hi, Jordan. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I don't know
1: if that was Jordan's quest. I think you just... He he, he
0: went on a quest to find the best pizza, right? That you could, you know, (laughs) that you could preserve and pass on. Tell us the story.
5: So, okay, no, it's not quite that, but we'll take that as an answer. That sounds pretty Um,
0: sexy, though, don't you think? A quest? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No,
5: even sexier than that is um, I was uh, online one evening looking at webcams, uh, and I came across this live webcam inside of a pizzeria uh in italy and kind of being a food guy i got obsessed with just watching what they were doing in the kitchen and um, they were making these really cool kind of artistic style pizzas like i've never seen like star-shaped that had ricotta cheese and fillings in the corners and they had they take the pizza out of the oven and then they would spend five or ten minutes dressing it up with burrata and all kinds of stuff it was gorgeous like putting a salad in the center of a ring um And I guess through the power of Facebook and the internet, I connected with them and you know told them I enjoyed watching them. and um, they said that they teach people and why don't I come out to Tuscany and learn? Um, oh yeah. I, I guess uh, who wouldn't pass up a trip or an excuse right. for a trip, right? right. Um, it was two years ago in November, so November's not quite the best month, but um, so I arrive in this little tiny 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 town called Massa which is on uh, uh, hillside overlooking the sea
0: and um near really do where, where where is it near Viareggio?
5: It's, it's in the Grassetto uh province near Salonica sure. um anyway uh so I started and they don't speak English um I don't really speak Italian so uh we arranged for a translator who happened to be my Airbnb host um or my VRBO host and um started up with them for, you know, week, week and a half. Um, and, you know, the first bit, Marco, the owner of this pizzeria, said, you've got to learn about the dough. So, you know, okay. So we went to their commissary and we're making a lot of dough. Um, that evening, we went back to the pizzeria and um, he, you know, we were going to have dinner and like all restaurant guys, you order everything on the menu, right? But um, so he, I was interested in all these cool shaped, Pizzas. And he said through the translator, you've got to try this other thing, this pizza. And I'm like, okay, thick crust pizza never really excited me in life. Um, but he said, you know, let's try it. And um, he actually said before it came out, he said, this will be what you eat the rest of your two weeks here. I said, okay. And sure enough, like one bite, it was unbelievable. It was thick, but it was like you're eating a down. Blanket. I mean, it was so fluffy and airy and crispy and like just a, a palette for what was on top of it. It was incredible. Um, anyway.
1: And so spent... what, so it's, so it's called Pinsa. Pinsa. And so what was it Where that you were like, yeah, I'm going to bring this to the States. I mean, do you need special products? Like, what do you do to make that happen?
5: So Pinsa is incredibly difficult. Like I left Italy and I could barely make it. Um, but because it's a really complicated dough, it's, um, normal pizza dough has about 50, 55% water. Pinsa has 85%. So it's super wow. wet. Also flour really doesn't want to absorb all that water. So you've got to right. mix it in a special way. The big secret though, and don't tell anybody is that it's a <laughs> 70, it's a 72 hour fermentation period. Okay. So The dough has to be incredibly strong to enable the yeast to eat all the sugar and turn it into meat and acid and do all its things. But part of that is is that it can't get too warm while you're mixing the dough because then it'll kind of make the yeast go too fast. So it's, you've got like a lot of issues here. You've got a very wet dough. You've got to incorporate all that water into the dough, into the flour. And then um, you've got to keep it under like 22, 22 and a half degrees centigrade. So, so it's a
1: painstaking you, process. It's you. It's it's a real labor of love in getting
5: execution. Yeah, yeah. But so you know, fast. So I left Italy thinking I love pizza. I love the shapes of the pizza. Um, you know, maybe I'll come back to the United States and open a pizzeria. Um, then um, uh, I hit myself over the head with a hammer and said, No, I'm not going to open a restaurant. Um, and just shelved it for a while and. You know, here we are now for the last year having a hard time going out um, to restaurants and, you know, getting carry out and making do at home, eating most of our meals at home. And I started really thinking that the pinza, because what I didn't tell you about is that once you make the dough and you let it rise at 72 hours, um, the crusts are then formed and partially baked in the morning. Then in the evening, afternoon, whenever, whenever you order it, the toppings are put on, it's put in the oven, and it's finished baking. So I'm thinking to myself, why can't this second bake be done in my kitchen? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, get the same quality or the same exciting product in my house that I had in Italy. So that's really what kind of drove me to get this started, is that I really wanted to have something that we could cook at home, that would be really good and really memorable.
1: Okay, so you're at uh, only because we only have a couple minutes left. So you're so, at your kitchen, you're creating the product. What correct. is the product that is now available?
5: Okay, so now what it is is it's it's a we've created the dough, we've created the crust, we've created the toppings, we are freezing it. Um, and then it's designed to be baked in your oven at home. It takes 18 minutes and bam, it's just like you're sitting on a hillside in Italy kind of But, um, um, but so, yeah, so that's, that's the thing right now. We are selling it online on our website. Um, our goal with Union Kitchen, because they're big into developing consumer product goods is to get it into supermarkets. Um, but that's going to, you know, that's going to take some time. We'll be in the Union Kitchen stores, um, starting next month. So distribution is beginning. So, you know, smaller gourmet stores are welcome to contact us if they wanted to, to check it out. Um, and then lastly, we're starting to work with some restaurants that are looking to try to expand their offering through Uber Eats or the third party delivery services because it could be delivered at the moment. Um, and honestly, you know, if you order a pinza online and you turn your oven on, by the time it gets to you and it's cooked, it's probably about the same time as ordering one of the big chains pizza and it's pretty different. So.
1: so now- of toppings are on the pincers that you can order. Yeah, right
5: that's now. what I was going to ask. Okay, so our classic is San Marzano tomatoes, ricotta, and mozzarella. Really basic. We also make a dough that is called Carbone, which has activated charcoal, charcoal and grains in it with the same topping, which is really good. Wow. Um, our next bestseller is the classic called uh, the Foresta, which has truffled mushrooms and sausage that we make ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, We have a kind of an ode to uh, Tuscany with a Sicilian pistachio uh, that has mortadella, pistachio pesto, and um, cheese. Um, So we have a couple of, we have some cool, cool varieties online. Those won't be in the supermarket. Those will only be available online.
0: Well, so if we order, well, let me jump in because if we order online now, if I order it at this moment, how long Mm -hmm. does it take for it to get to me and how does it come so that it's still frozen and all of that? So it's
5: only local delivery now, and it's typically the next day, even the same day if you get to us before noon. Mm-hmm. And that's just because we're able to handle that volume ourselves at this point. So, um, so it might be me delivering it, and you know, you don't have to tip me, so.
1: Excellent. Well, I think, you know, there needs to be a little education on the pinza. Because when David started the show, he was like, it's pizza. And I was like, no, it's Pinsa. So, um, you know, getting people to understand the quality of the product and what it actually is, is really going to be on you to explain since, you know, you're the first person I've met to tell us about it.
5: (laughs) For sure. Well, I always like to say pinza is pizza, but pizza isn't pinza. I love it. So it's a type of pinza. That's just super thick, super light, super airy. And there's a lot of health studies showing that this long fermentation gets rid of a lot of the carbs. You know, it's possible that it lowers the glycemic index. You don't feel heavy. Um, It's very like in Italy. I don't know if you guys heard when you were in Italy, but everybody would always talk about digestibility. We only talk about digestibility to our doctors in the United States. They talk about it at dinner. Um, and it's true. It is. Jordan, I'm going to have to
1: cut you off because the show is sure. over. So do you mind just telling everybody of your website or your Instagram page where they can order from you?
5: Sure. It's www.pinsa.love. No.com. Just pinsa.love. And we're at pinsa.love on Instagram.
0: All right. Jordan, Jordan stay on the line because I want to talk to you after the show. <laughs> okay
1: uh this is david and nikki nellis foodie and the beast we want to thank you so much for joining us today please remember go to the list are you on it, dot com. we have lists of everything happening for inauguration so many places to order from please support your restaurants if you want them to be here after this pandemic then you need to order from them do takeaway. tell your neighbors get them all together buy gift cards do what you can to hashtag save our restaurant lastly mask up dip your bod in hand sanitizer be safe and we'll see you next week